The short game is listener-supported on Patreon. If you'd like to support the show and join us on our Discord, head to theshortgame.net or patreon.com slash theshortgame. Welcome back to The Short Game. This is a show about short video games, games that respect your time. I am Reagan Kelly, and this time I am joined by just my one very cool co-host and bro-host, Shane Kelly. And uh, this week we're talking about a little horror game. Uh, We usually try to do at least one horror game during the month of October. Here we're jumping the gun a little bit, just because of the way our schedule worked out. We may do another one towards the end of October, closer to the true spooky season. But this week, we want to... When you say we usually try, we usually fail. That's exactly right. We usually get around to a horror game in, like, mid-August or something like that. Like, months and months and months late. (laughs) We're really bad at schedules. It's a fact. Uh, speaking of schedules, we're doing uh, we're doing IF comps soon. That is the one part of our schedule that remains pretty consistent. Look forward to it, please. Uh, but yeah, this week we are talking about Paratopic. Uh, Paratopic is a, a horror game uh, for. It was originally a you know PC itch.io type of thing uh, that recently, as in within the last month, came out on the Nintendo Switch, uh, which is a bit of an unexpected port. Um, but it's also the kind of game that just on the face of it, is sort of very squarely in our wheelhouse. It is an extremely short, like, say, 30 to 50 minute, uh, one sitting narrative sort of exploration first person game. It's a horror game with a very, uh, very specific aesthetic. And that is that it's really trying very hard to ape the aesthetic of a PlayStation 1 3D first person game uh, while while using that aesthetic for horror purposes, unsettling purposes. And it is quite creepy. Many of the characters that you'll meet in the game have this sort of, I don't know, Inland Empire, Eraserhead vibe going on, uh, where something is askew and you don't really know what is the weird character you're interacting with and what is just weird tone across the board for this uh, for this piece of media. Uh, it's surrealist and surreal horror in the short form in a video game is pretty, it's something that both draws you in and makes you feel like alienated at the same time. It's a, it's a very odd little feeling indie game. It's most notable for its aesthetic and for its uh, attempt to apply a, a certain sort of uh, film-like editing style to horror games uh, in a way that I don't know if I've seen a lot of. Right. But to, to start with the aesthetic, which is sort of the most obvious and perhaps the most sort of uh, successful thing about it, uh, it's really aping a PlayStation 1 aesthetic in that it's, it's very low poly, um, but it also has the sort of, like, there's a lot of games that are doing low poly, and some people will point at things like, for example... Hotshot Racing, which we just covered last week. And they'll, they might point at that and say, oh, this has a PlayStation 1 style. And what they mean by that is it's relatively low poly. But that couldn't be true further from what the actual truth of the PlayStation 1's true aesthetic, its true darkness is. Uh, the PlayStation 1 uh, had some really unique technology behind its ability to put textures onto polygons. I'm not really a, a huge expert here, um, but something about the way that its, you know, its GPU worked uh, meant that while it could apply textures to polygons, 
Uh, they were extremely low resolution and they had a certain sort of swimminess to them. You know, I, I don't know how many PlayStation one games you've played Shane, but like few, because we actually didn't have a PlayStation one. We, we didn't really get into the PlayStation bandwagon until the PS two, but I've gone back and played quite a few. And there's just something about the way that PlayStation one 3d graphics look that's very unique and has never really like it's it's not something that you see a lot of anymore because frankly it was kind of bad uh it had this this sort of i the only word i can really kind of apply to it is sort of swimminess this sort of like uh it it was sort of as if some if every three-dimensional shape in the game was slightly up for negotiation about what shape it actually was, right? And and every pattern or texture that was applied to an object in the game had the in in all PlayStation 1 games that had 3D graphics had a certain feeling of like the 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 art being sort of projected on with like a a bad projector onto the polygons. Um it just looks really weird. This was especially true when they would try and do some kind of lighting. Um, because it wasn't a particularly capable system when it comes to lighting. And so you'd get edges that seemed to have a little bit of a, a pixely grit to them and, and flickery lighting that would be, you know, that here is, is deployed all, you know, to both to evoke this sort of older aesthetic and also to give you this unease that like a, a, a actual flickering fluorescent bulb would give you. Um, I found a, I found an interesting quote from one of the co-creators of this game um, talking about the trends in art styles in horror games and, and in this sort of low poly trend, uh, because it really is a trend in, in the indie space. A lot of, a lot of the art styles in, in indie games, I think are kind of driven by two factors that, that tend to go together. One is the kind of retro aesthetic uh, of people wanting to recreate games that are from their youth. And then the second is that the tools tend to get, uh, you know, that the indies devs tend to be using tend to work well for these more retro aesthetics because, you know, you can be very economical with them. Uh, but the, the co-creator of the game, Jessica Harvey uh, said, I think that as far as trends go, you can map a broadly equivalent length of time between the wave of eight and 16 bit indies and the recent emergence of low fidelity 3d indies that you can between the length of time between those styles to original prominences, which I think is kind of interesting to think about. We were sort of seeing a, a parallel timeline uh, of indie games that are re enacting the original eras of, of, uh, of, of technological development of games in the first place. I think that's kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. And it is kind of an interesting thing to look at with this particular game, because like a, a lot of, if you look back at the sort of early waves and even current, cause this wave has never gone away of indie games with a 2d poly or 2d uh, pixel art aesthetic. Um, a lot of those were kind of trying to apply that aesthetic or their own modern spin on it um, to games that were trying to kind of not just exclusively recreate something from these people's childhoods that they loved, but rather kind of like the way that they remembered those games or the way those games were in their heads or what have you. And there were a lot of pretty spooky games on the original PlayStation, but playing some of them today, they feel kind of different from that. I think something about this game is that it's a, it's a uh, attempt to make a modern game that feels 
unsettling in the way that you might remember feeling unsettled by one of those horror games like Resident Evil on the original PlayStation. But obviously, in order to make you truly unsettled from a game today, you have to do some different things. And this game definitely does. It also brings in inspiration from like, uh, like Shane, you mentioned Eraserhead, that style of, of movie making, the sort of uh, David Lynch style. And it's also bringing in inspiration from sort of like, you know, VHS uh, horror films that you might have rented in the 90s and that sort of thing. Another thing that is going on here is you, you, you have both this low poly game aesthetic. Um, but today, when people are looking back at that aesthetic and they're trying to create a novel visual style using it it brings that together with the kind of vhs fuzzy aesthetic Mm -hmm. and the crt effects and like the 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 feel of watching a horror movie on vhs you know yeah and trying to put all that together in a blender um can look really good and quite scary when you do it well. Yeah. And using the aesthetic trappings here of like the PlayStation one, for example, um, in a more specific and intentional way can, can lead to things that are really unsettling. An example here would be like, go back to the PlayStation, play any game that tried to have like any kind of detail on three dimensional characters faces. And, you know, we were talking about the the problems with its ability to draw textures onto polygons before you'd always have these sorts of issues where maybe the, 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 uh, the eyes weren't always in the same place on a person's head or their face. I know exactly what you're, what you're getting. Exactly. Shifted slightly off center on their face. And then this game, you know, doesn't do that by accident. They're doing it very specifically to be creepy. So you'll, you know, you'll have a conversation with a character where their face is right in your face and their face is sliding around on the three-dimensional model of their head in ways that are really kind of creepy. And it's really neat to see those sorts of things that were like accidents in the past made intentional here. Uh, and like, how are those choosing to be deployed? It's really kind of cool. So aesthetically, I think we've hit pretty much all of it, except for the one thing that you told me about this game going into it to expect, which is the idea of the kind of smash cut in a video game, which is still pretty rare. Um, I didn't get the chance to play the game you were telling me was so close to this one, which is the game 30 Flights of Loving. Yeah. But smash cuts I'm very familiar with from uh, film and television. That's where you have... A, you know, it's a little bit more than just the quick cut. It's the, um, it's a cut that occurs at a crucial moment in a scene that's usually an unexpected moment in a scene. So, for example, you might have a smash cut where uh, you're in a murder scene and the the murderer, the killer is bringing the knife down on a victim. Uh, but just before the blade pierces their skin, uh, we, maybe we hear a scream and 
instantly we cut away to a nonviolent scene where, you know, we are, we are left kind of shaken from the first scene and, and now, but the story won't slow down for us. And that's something that this game has going for it is really interesting uh, to see that in video games in general. And there's actually a technical reason for that. And is that in most video games, moving from one space to another requires loading times. So um, when you have something that's retro like this, you can um, you can simultaneously load two scenes because, you know, there's like probably, uh, you know, a, a hundred rectangles and polygons between them. Um, so, so you're able to deploy these more filmic style cutting techniques in, 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 even though you are in something that's, that's pretty much interactive. So, uh, that's kind of interesting and unique. Yeah. Uh, I think it's, it's deployed well for a horror, uh, horror aesthetic here. It is. And it's, it's super vital to what I think they're trying for in this game. So to go, kind of go back a little bit to what Shane was talking about a moment ago, uh, you know, 30 flights of loving, we've covered that on this show, by the way, if you go back into our archive, do a search or something, uh, we had an episode on 30 flights of loving. We've also done an episode on a game that I liked a lot, although some of my co-hosts did not called Virginia, uh, which also employs a lot of the same kind kind of editing. Um, but 30 Flights of Loving is sort of the touch point for this because I think it's basically the first game that really deployed this, you know, more or less throughout uh, as sort of its main storytelling technique, this sort of smash cut, uh, which uh, in in some ways in a game can just really do like serve telling you a story you know you this is this functions basically like a walking simulator but like at its simplest you know there there's there's a moment for example in in the game where you are walking down a path that you have already walked down once before uh and so rather than make you the player walk down that path the whole time or rather than skipping the path entirely you begin walking down the path smash cut to the middle of the path, walk a little further, smash cut to the end of the path. So it's basically an ellipsis in the storytelling, um, skipping over something that doesn't really matter or isn't very interesting. Um, But there's a lot of times in this game where those ellipsis are there, those smash cuts are there to kind of make you wonder about what happened in the gaps, right? Um, And to sort of estrange you from the story. There's, there's uh, this game is specifically, uh, tells you, although it doesn't tell you in the game, it tells you in the description of the of the game on the itch page, for example, or in the the Nintendo eShop. Uh, it tells you that this is a game about three characters. Uh, this the description that it gives you is: as an assassin prepares for her kill, a man is strong armed into smuggling contraband VHS tapes over the border, and a young girl finds the rusted remnants of illicit industry deep in a dark forest. That's the description that we get of this game. And you're going to play as each of those characters throughout, although it doesn't really signpost for you at any moment, oh, now we're switching from the assassin to the smuggler, for example. You have to kind of guess at who you are as much as where you are and at what point in the story you are. Um, This is sort of part of its way of making you feel unsettled throughout the whole game, uh, is sort of not knowing exactly where you are in the story at any point, um, kind of piecing those things together afterwards or as you go. Uh, so it's uh, those smash cuts kind of serve a lot of purposes here. The other thing that I think is really important here about the uh, the smash cuts is the title of this game is Paratopic. And that was not a, a word that I knew going into this game. 
Um, and honestly, if you if you Google it, you will have a difficulty finding its specific meaning because it's one of those very academic words that's like coined in a research paper somewhere and you need a JSTOR login to ever find out what this word means, right? But uh, I did a little Googling and uh, what I believe they're referring to with the title is paratopic space. Uh, and this is uh, this is a sort of a very academic word uh, that is uh, used in sort of academic writing about narratives. Um, and so it's kind of uh, used to distinguish uh, what's called paratopic space from utopic space. Uh, so utopic space is the space where the story happens. So the, the space where events of your story occur. Um, it, so like uh, topic is like, uh, is like Greek for place, I think, or a top, to, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm not an academic person. Sorry for the, the very vagueness of this here, but like, uh, paratopic, meaning it's, it's, a space that exists beyond or just outside or next to story space. Right. And so that's what this game is all about. This game is about setting you in those moments and spaces that are in between things in this story. So, you know, they, it has a story to tell, but you only see it through the hints as people are sort of moving between story spaces. So for example, you spend a lot of time in this game in places like cars and elevators and hallways uh, and on pathways through forests on your way to a thing. And when you get to that thing, you will likely see a jump cut or a smash cut because this game is most interested in showing you those paratopic spaces, those spaces in between the events of the narrative. Um, and it's really, uh, it's really interesting. At times, it's a little bit confusing. I had to play this game twice before I was sure, for example, which scenes were happening to the uh, the smuggler versus the um, uh, the assassin versus the girl discovering things in the woods. Uh, it's uh, it's kind of hard to tell which of those characters you are at any of these three given times, especially because there are some some props that appear to kind of go from one character to another. Um, so you can't always even tell based on like what you're holding. Um, but it's, uh, it's, I think it's very effective at creating a sense of unease. Uh, so I, you know, it's a, it's a game about sort of the uneasy feeling of like knowing something is going to happen and feeling that it's going to be bad until it happens. And you don't get to see that part, uh, which is mostly creepy. Mostly creepy is an excellent description of this game. <laughs> uh, okay, yes. And I feel like we should probably talk about how effective we thought this was as horror. Um, because I think it, it works pretty well in, like, it, I, I, should, I should start, I should preface this by saying this game is about 35 to 45 minutes. It's not a very long uh, session. Um, and so as such, it has, I'd say, two or three moments of genuine creepiness and, and one specific spot that made me jump out of my chair. Um, but I don't think that it quite is like, it's not like a, a absolute horror tour de force. Um, it, it depends on what you want out of horror though. I'm not exactly like a, yeah. a horror connoisseur. Uh, I see a lot of horror movies because my wife absolutely is a horror connoisseur. I'm just sort of along for the ride, but like, I don't know, Shane, how did you feel this sort of, how did, how successful did you think this was as a, as a horror experience? I would say it's pretty successful um, 
if you are in the game for experimental horror, like if you're, if you're going in and you're thinking you're going to have the traditional horror film experience, for example, you, you absolutely will not. Um, it doesn't for the reasons of its structure have the level of investment that you would expect in an actual horror movie, horror movies and horror games tend to try to get you to care about the characters. And they do so by giving you um, kind of some basis to understand those characters. And you don't really get that uh, here. What you do have is really successful, spooky, scary imagery. Mm -hmm. And so, so that's, that part of it is really, really successful. The thing that's kind of um, a question still in my mind is if they were to take the, to take this and, expand upon it how much of that scary imagery would still work for me because a lot of it is uh you know oh this is something that feels familiar and yet twisted and scary and you know how 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 scary will it stay the more familiar i become with it if if that makes sense as a question i also at the end of the game left with with the sense that more than anything it felt like an introduction to something. It felt like the first 30 minutes of an action horror game that was really slowly easing me into it. Mm, I could see that. Yeah. I kind of left with like a, a feeling that it was like the first half of an episode of the X files, that kind of vibe, like, you know, the, the cold open, the person who is, uh, you know, is, is killed in mysterious circumstances. Mulder and Scully are coming to check it out later. And we never got to the Mulder and Scully checking it out portion, uh, which is fine. That's not necessarily what I wanted out. Of, I did not want a X-Files game here, um, but I did. I kind of agree with you in that it sort of feels like the beginning of something without a distinct ending. I think that's fun to kind of go into it because it, it is going to kind of stick with me a little bit. Like there are some of the weirder, more effed up imagery in this that I, I think is going to be, you know, memorable on its own and, and was a, was a good experience. And I, I think this has just a dash of replayability. Like you, you probably, if you, if you want to, you probably can replay this a couple of three times and, and get a little bit more out of it each time in terms mm-hmm. of uh, digging to understand what story beats there are. Like, cause there are a lot of those things like you mentioned that are, um, this kind of feels inverted in terms of, you know, what we're seeing the story bits where, you know, our assassin is pulled over to a stop and shop on the side of the road and, and talks to some guy about a motel that burned down, uh, rather than the scenes where he's doing the assassinating, uh, and, and to have that kind of inverted structure gives you a little bit of a narrative puzzle that you can try and tease out, um, but how much you're going to want to do that is really going to depend on how effective the the basics of it are for you. And I thought it was reasonably effective. So, so this is, this is something that I would, I would suggest people play if you are in the right headspace to get a little bit creeped out. Yeah. And I'd also, um, I'd recommend this game for folks who are interested in the, uh, like techniques of narrative storytelling in first person games. This is doing some stuff that like, you know, yes, we've talked about it in terms of it being like 
similar in a way to 30 Flights of Loving, I would play that, but I would recommend playing this too, because it kind of shows that this can, this style can be, the style of editing can be applied in other ways than just what 30 Flights did. Uh, and I, I think it's really successful at that. I also think, I mean, it's, a, it, it's also, this is a, a game that won a lot of awards. Uh, it, you know, won some, it won an award at IGF. Uh, I think it was for its audio, but still, like, it was a well-regarded game. Um, it was on a bunch of lists in 2018 when it initially came out. This came out in 2018? Yeah, yeah, 2018. Wow, uh, on, okay. On PC, and then the 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 current port was very recent. Um, but that's partly why I think it, it feels a little bit less, uh, you know, uh, surprising today is that this came out in 2018 and we hadn't seen yet a lot of uh, games doing the retro PS1 aesthetic at all and specifically hadn't seen very many of them doing horror. This was basically the first game to do that as far as I can tell. Um, but since that time, since this came out, it's actually set off a bit of a wave of uh, sort of micro indie PS1 aesthetic horror so, like, I, I just did a little bit of uh. looking after this, you know, after playing this game, because uh, I, I felt like I've seen other games sort of trying for this. But if you go, for example, on itch.io right now uh, and and do a search, they have a feature, for example, where you can, like, search for, like, a combination of two tags. And, and a, if you look for a combination of the tag horror and the tag PSX, you will find 175 games and all of them have come out since this game. I think this has basically set off a, a little micro wave of this style. Um, but this, I believe, is its origin point. So I will say, I think there may be one or two examples from a little earlier than this. Uh, there's one that I did not play uh, that came out in 2017 on PC called Helltown. Uh, that is a very... PSX-inspired uh, horror game. Uh, it's a little bit earlier than this. So I feel like... Okay, this one I've never seen. Maybe this just goes back to um, that quote that I had from the uh, from the developer about the uh, progress of indie games kind of slowly creeping down the retro timeline. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm so sure maybe that this, this is like, just a, a vibe whose time has come. There's really no firsts in games. You know, every time I ever make an argument that something is the first of anything, I'm, I'm almost immediately disproven. Like that just happens. There's always an antecedent. There's always, you know, there's always something that came before, but you're right. This, this definitely looks like it's doing this, this sort of vaguely PS one aesthetic and it's, uh, it's attempting a horror thing. So, but Hey, like, the, there are a lot more after it than before. We'll put it that way. Um, and uh, there's a couple that have been pretty notable. I still haven't played them, but for example, like there's one that made a lot of rounds on on blogs a little while ago called Haunted PS1 Demo Disc, which is exactly what it sounds like. And actually, that sounds like exactly what I want more of. So I'm, I'm going to check that one out when I have some time because, I mean, I want a Haunted PS1 Demo Disc. Um, and there's actually a developer called Puppet Combo that seems to kind of specialize in this too. Uh, so I've, I've seen a couple of their games. I think one of them was in that uh, itch.io bundle a little while ago called Babysitter Bloodbath, which is a, a, a like a 3D uh, like slasher game with a sort of a VHS meets PS1 sort of vibe to its uh, graphics. I don't know if that's any good mm-hmm. or not, but uh, it certainly looks interesting from the graphics. So this is definitely something yeah. that like, 
I, I feel like this is a good it's match between a genre horror game and aesthetic PS one style. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good match. Yeah. And I, I think it is kind of interesting to watch the, um, the shift in public perception of certain kind of tech aesthetics and certain game aesthetics. I remember just a couple of years ago that it was a very widely held belief, very widely held opinion, um, probably majority, that good SNES pixel art was timeless, while PS1 and PS2 games had aged very poorly, uh, like the difference between beautiful hand-drawn cartoon art and early 3D cartoons, you know? Um, So... So it is very interesting to me to see that that kind of opinion is fluid and is changing over time. Yeah, even though that felt like such a like basic truism of the universe, right? It felt like a like a platonic aesthetic ideal that like of course good pixel art is timeless and of course uh early 3D was a flailing mess. And it's like y- y- yeah, sure, but like we continue to open new avenues in aesthetics and, you know, aesthetics is always like evolving. And I, I personally have used to have that exact opinion and uh, not even all that long ago. And I'm starting to come around and I don't even have the, the deep nostalgic affection for early PlayStation one games. Like I mentioned, like, well, I mean, I, I had a Sega Saturn, uh, but like my, uh, I don't, I never had, like, I never played Resident Evil on the PlayStation 1. And so I don't have any sort of, like, nostalgic brain tickle when I see a scary creature in low poly, like, bad, you know, 3D. Like, it, it doesn't do anything for me from a nostalgic perspective, but it's grown on me enormously as an aesthetic anyway. So that's Paratopic. It is available on itch.io where you can get uh, builds for Mac and Windows and I believe Linux as well. And it's also recently become available on the Nintendo Switch. Uh, it is about a half an hour to 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes if you do quite a bit of exploring. Uh, and uh, it costs $5.49. Uh, and I felt quite good about that as a uh, as a sort of a one sit- sitting, you know, evening of interesting uh, narrative entertainment. So if you are into that style of things, I would definitely recommend checking it out. Uh, very interesting. And with that... I think we'd like to turn from the grim and heavily pixelated and spooky world to bright and shiny and happy things that are uh, making us happy. We have a segment on the show where we like to talk about things that are making us happy. And the name we have given to this segment in which we talk about those things which are making us happy is what's making us happy this week. So uh, I'd like to say some things that are making me happy with this week. Reagan, if you'll say some things that are making you happy this week. Uh, if, if it'll get you to stop introducing the segment, go ahead. I always like to have a nice 
long and complex introduction to the segment making us happy this week because I feel like it really needs to be explained. <laughs> Thank you, Shane. Um, so uh, the thing that is making me happy this week is a documentary. Um, there's a so Reagan. Are you familiar? Uh, you're you're an online person. I'm sure you're familiar with Pepe the Frog. Unfortunately, yes. Ah, uh, for unfortunately, you you might say because poor poor Pepe the Frog has had um, some some trouble. Uh, has has been appropriated in some unfortunate ways. Um, and the new documentary feels good, man is a documentary about really the artist Matt Fury, who was the guy who created Pepe the Frog. Um, So for those of you who might only have seen uh, this green frog in internet forums. In racist memes. um, Yeah, frequently in racist memes. um, you, You may or you may not know that the character of Pepe the Frog was originally created in a comic book called... Boys Club, which is, as as far as, you know, indie comics go, a, a fairly inoffensive comic. Um, and actually is a kind of quite nice. I have read it. It's a good comic. Um, and uh, people started to share it around online. And the character of Pepe became far more popular than the comic itself. And in fact, kind of um, lost touch with its origin and uh, kind of warped and and morphed. And that is a really odd story for an artist. So, so the, this artist of Matt Fury in this documentary, it focuses on uh, him creating this character, how it got away from him. Um, it goes on to, you know, show all the ways in which it goes, shows up in the news. Like it became a, a listed hate symbol in the Anti-Defamation League um, catalog of hate symbols right up there with the swastika. And the documentary covers um, Matt Fury's reaction to it. He's a very, uh, he's kind of a quiet, sweet man. Um, And uh, I think it's a really fascinating story to follow. And so in addition to um, being a really good documentary, Another nice thing about this this film is that it has a lot of animation. Um, they have brought in some really good animators to kind of use the characters of Boys Club to tell the story of what happened to Pepe uh, in, an, in a way, because it kind of treats this animation almost like a frame story. And... Um, I thought it was a really well-made film, um, told a really interesting and important story. Um, and I was worried it would be a total downer, but it actually is not a total downer. Um, there's some, uh, there's some redemption for Pepe, uh, at the end of this story. So uh, I definitely recommend it. Uh, it, it has, uh, it is a political documentary, but it's sort of political adjacent. So if, if the, the, the dour state of politics uh, is depressing you too much, um, but, you know, probably get away from it entirely. Uh, but, but if it's just depressing you a little bit, maybe, maybe uh, Pepe in Feels Good Man would be a good thing for you to check out. I, I definitely would suggest it. I really want to see that. I remember following, uh, you know, some articles, for example, about, about um, you know, that, 
that, that whole saga with great interest, but I, I had not seen this documentary yet. So where can people watch that? Is it on, on Netflix or? Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, it's not on Netflix. Um, I think right now it, well, it just won a bunch of awards at Sundance. Oh, um, okay, okay. I, and I think you can, uh, you can check it out. Probably best place would be on Amazon where you can rent it. Okay, gotcha. Well, I'm definitely going to try to check that out soon. That sounds really good. Uh, I was going to recommend a video game uh, that I've been playing recently, and I've actually been playing it for a couple of weeks now. Uh, I have been playing CrossCode on the Nintendo Switch, and uh, I've been noticing something. Uh, this, is, this is a bit of a pattern for me lately. Is that like I don't really like jumping into games that are uh, early access, even if they sound like they're really up my alley, because, you know, early access just feels like paying to beta test something to me. You know, my time is limited. I like, you know, I only, I'm only going to play most games once. And this is especially applies to, um, to like narrative focused games, because I'm certainly not going to go back and probably play it again once it's been, you know, fleshed out or whatever. And I don't like playing the first half of something and then coming back to playing the second half six months or a year later. It's not for me. Um, and even even like run based things, uh, I tend to not like it because I know I'm just I you know I'm I don't want to play the unfinished version. I want to jump in when it's done, right? Um, but there's been a real like uh, pattern uh, that has been happening a lot lately. Uh, I would say almost sort of starting with uh, with Hollow Knight of like games that ha- spend a long time getting polished and perfectly honed in early access on PC and then launch in a sort of a final 1.0 on switch. And uh, like that happened with hollow Knight. I, I know what game you're talking about. Well, I'm talking this time about, uh, about cross code, um, which I mentioned already. Oh, I thought, <laughs> I, I thought, I thought you were talking about Hades. Yeah. The same exact thing. Like the same thing is going on with Hades. People are, are losing their, their minds about how good Hades is as if it came out of nowhere. When in fact it's been sort of out and being polished and being, uh, you know, improved in response to community feedback yeah. for I'm a couple of years. I'm Hades now. right now. Yeah. I just downloaded Hades, but I've told myself I want to finish cross code, which is what I'm talking about now before I start Hades. Um, but like, this is now apparently my thing is like, waiting for these big multi-year early access properties to finally release in 1.0 on switch specifically, and then jumping into them. And it's been great. Um, uh, so CrossCode is a, uh, a really weird kind of amalgam of things. I-, I tweeted about this a while back, uh, but like specifically, like it feels like a, uh, it's a, it's a top down game with a sort of Zelda like action, uh, adventure style, uh, but with a little bit more going on than a typical like 2D Zelda, because there is jumping, you have both melee and ranged attacks that you can use constantly or even sort of simultaneously. Um, and uh, and on top of the sort of Zelda style action and Zelda style dungeons, there's lots of dungeons and they're very big with lots of puzzles. And actually something kind of fun about it is that even the overworld uh, you know, getting from one city to another, for example, across the map involves solving, solving a lot of Zelda style puzzles. It's very like micro puzzles constantly that are like the kind of fun ones that don't stop you and make you like uh, screech to a halt, but like give you a little something to do all the time. Um, but then on top of that, it's got sliding block puzzles. Got it. Yeah, actually. Yes. But like good ones, uh, <laughs> uh, there are no good ones. There are good ones in this. Uh, there's, uh, there's also a JRPG style, like, uh, item and loot 
mechanic. So you're constantly upgrading your, your weapons and armor. Uh, you're constantly collecting items that you can trade with vendors. Uh, all that sounds a little annoying, but it's handled in ways that make it really fun and, and adds to the experience and keeps you moving. Um, and the, uh, uh, the story is really unusual and it, it first sounded like something I wouldn't like. So I'll say like, if this sounds unappealing to you, um, trust me, it's better than it sounds, but it's also, opens up some really interesting possibilities for the game. So the game takes place within an MMORPG or rather specifically it's in a far future where people play a MMORPG that is actually sort of Westworld like where they're actually projecting their minds into either holograms or robots. It's a little unclear that are running around on an actual physical Island in the middle of the ocean. That is the game. Uh, so, uh, Everybody is is sort of logging into the game and projecting into these like robots, but it has the MMORPG structure. So there is a plot to the game that you're all playing together. Every single person around you is playing this game, quote unquote, cross worlds with the game within a game. And the game within a game is an MMORPG, which means that every single one of you is the savior of all of, all of eternity, right? You know, every single one of you is playing out the same plot. You'll talk to people about the game that you're playing or you won't because you're a silent protagonist getting to that in a second. Um, but when you interact with other people, they're going through the same story that you are, but maybe ahead of you in it or behind you in it, which is an interesting thing to have happen in a non multiplayer game. Um, and, uh, you're also a, the, the main character is a silent protagonist because they are a person who I don't want to give anything away in spoilers. So I'll, I'll, I'll just try to keep this very, very vague, uh, for, for technical reasons, you can't speak. Uh, something is broken about your interface to the game and prevents you from speaking, um, which actually is kind of a constant source of amusing jokes, but also kind of an interesting central mystery to the game. It's like, why can't I talk? Mm -hmm. um, I have no mouth. Yeah. And yet I must scream. And uh, it's it's got a lot of interesting mystery to the story. Uh, it, it starts with a big bang and then, you know, you're, in, you're playing this MMORPG, but like, there's something more than the MMORPG that's progressing the story forward. Like you're not just in it to play the MMORPG. You're there for a reason, which I won't go into because of spoiler reasons, but like, it's really quite, um, it's really quite interesting. And the, initially that plot sounded kind of uninteresting to me, but like, it's actually totally hooked me. Um, and it's mostly just really fun to play. It's, it's kind of got this like top down, uh, shooter style thing for the, like you've got, you're constantly shooting bullets and hitting with swords and it's full of action and huge boss sprites and all that stuff. So really fun. And it's huge. It's a really big game, but it also feels like I'm constantly moving forward in it. So I haven't felt like I'm overwhelmed by it. Totally recommend checking it out. It's definitely too long for the show. So I won't be talking about it anymore on this podcast. This is all you'll hear from me about CrossCode. But I recommend checking out CrossCode on the Nintendo Switch. It's great. It's also on Game Pass. It's on all the other consoles. Check it out. If you are uh, playing CrossCode and you'd like to chat about it with Reagan, you can find us online at underscore the short game. Or you can talk to us at the very best place to chat about us Chat, <laughs> chat about us. At the very you're, best, you're place. welcome to chat about us as at well. The, the very best place to chat with us about video games, which is the short game Discord. Patrons of the show at any level, even just a buck, can join our Discord and join in very lively discussions. Now, of course, mostly we are talking about short games, but uh, everyone has a different amount of time on their hands, especially these days. And so the long game discussions there can get... Uh, 
just as long as many of our short games are short. So we're also rolling into IF comp season. So our very next episode, according to our current schedule, unless something shifts, is going to be our introductory uh, IF comp 2020 episode. Uh, IF comp uh, begins. First of all, if you're not familiar, if you're you know new to the show and you're not familiar with IF comp, or maybe you, you just haven't heard of it, uh, IF comp or the interactive fiction competition is a yearly uh, online competition that has been happening for ages now, like since the 90s i forget like a really long time um a long time this is if comp's 26th year uh as an annual celebration of new text-driven digital games and stories all from independent independent content creators and all provided for free for your perusal so yes uh if comp is always a fun thing for us every year um, and I'm really looking forward to it this year. Yeah, we, uh, we've covered it every year that we have been a podcast and, uh, it's a, it's a big thing for us. It's usually multiple episodes. So I'm really looking forward to it. I have comp, uh, the games are released to the public all in a great big drop on October 1st. Um, our next episode, uh, should be releasing on October 5th. So we'll probably have a sort of abbreviated episode just covering like the very first stuff we've had time to check out. And then we'll be getting into deeper coverage in, uh, another episode following that. Um, so really looking forward to talking about IF comp and our discord is a great place to talk about games in IF comp. IF comp is one of those things where we get this massive drop of games and everybody's kind of going through it, trying to figure out what to play, what's interesting. Uh, and so having a place to chat about that stuff in real time can be a real plus. Um, especially if you're not a forum person, a lot of IF comp discussion happens on forums, but I'm more of a chat guy. So, uh, join us on our short game discord and talk to us about your IF comp thoughts. We really would love to have you there for that conversation. Uh, and we'll be, we'll be doing that. Throughout Come talk the month to chat October. guy, Reagan. Yes. Chat guy, Reagan. So, uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Reagan K. I'm R-A-Y-G-A-N-K. And Shane, where can people find you on the internet? I'm on Twitter at 8BitShane. And listeners, thank you so much for listening to The Short Game. <laughs>